the real problem is not like, what is the right way to like schedule flashcards or something? Their real problem is that, you know, they have this kind of anxiety that keeps them from actually putting in significant amounts of studying time. So Jaime, you remember Barbara Oakley. I do. Great right? podcast. Do you remember the podcast number? 79. Well, see, what I just made you do is uh, I, we did a little retrieval practice there. You see what we did? And I think it makes sense. And everybody here will know what retrieval practice is after this podcast. She wrote a, a book. It was also on our podcast. But she was, I found her on the jacket of this book, Ultra Learning. And she said, Ultra Learning is the best book on learning I've ever read. So I had to talk to this guy. So I reached out to Scott Young, wanted to talk to him a little bit about his book, Ultra Learning. And I'm reading from the jacket here. Learn a new skill, stay relevant, adapt to whatever the workplace throws your way. Ultra Learning is the essential guide to future-proofing your career and maximizing your competitive advantage through self-education. So I had to pick it up, I had to read it, I did. Scott Young's a writer uh, and as he says, has undertook interesting self-education projects such as attempting to learn MIT's four-year computer science curriculum in 12 months and learning four languages in one year. Uh, we had to pick this one up. Scott Young, Ultra Learning. His book covers a wide range of concepts that are maybe not so well adopted, but the research is astounding today from behavioral economists, cognitive scientists on how learning actually works. He does a great job in this book summing it up, and that's why we wanted to talk to him today. Also, Cal Newport. You might know Cal from his book, Deep Work. He said of Scott's book, Ultra learning is like a superpower in your competitive economy. Read the book, it'll change your life. Scott's also a programmer, entrepreneur, has been featured on BBC, TEDx, Wired, Popular Mechanics. If you're a talent leader, manager, coach, developer of people, if you have to onboard somebody, upskill somebody, reskill somebody, there is something here for you to take away. Here's Scott Young. Let's bring it in. So Scott, ultra learning. Why'd you write it? <laughs> well, I wrote it because um, not only myself, but I've met all these people that have had these cool experiences learning difficult subjects, difficult skills in somewhat unconventional ways, you know, often not going to school, not doing the normal thing that you do to learn it. And I wanted to share those stories because I think we live in a time where we know that, you know, these training and education experiences are getting harder to get more expensive and uh, people want other alternatives for getting good at things. In when I, um, when I was reading through the book, you know, the premise mm -hmm. of these sort of nine universal principles that you, you talk about, mm -hmm. um, how did you come across those? Well, I mean, again, they're sort of drawn from this sort of pastiche of different stories and personal experiences. So some of these just seem to be, you know, true to me. And then others are based directly on cognitive science research. So like I had a chapter on retrieval and that's like just that even that word is straight up plucked from cognitive science. And it was something that I, you know, when I encountered the research, I was like, why don't students know about this? Why don't they know because they're spending a lot of time studying in a way that we know to be inefficient. And so I think there's a sort of a nice mixture there of kind of the practical hands-on derived from, from doing it. And also, you know, there's a lot of cognitive science out there that tells us how we learn things. And so I think both need to be appreciated. It's hard to explain things like retrieval to people <laughs> or, you know, the concept yeah. that, you know, when, when I found myself talking about 
some of the concepts, uh, you'll get somebody who says, yeah, but where does the learning happen? You know, I got to get, if I'm tested on something or I'm um, forced to recall something, don't I still have to, they'll say things like, don't I have to learn it first before I'm challenged by a topic? How do you, how do you, how do you make it easy to communicate? Well, I think you're right. I mean, I think definitely like retrieval, if there's nothing to retrieve, uh, doesn't always work. There is some sort of interesting kind of uh, speculative evidence that having some initial failures, so you you try some problem that you don't actually have the tools to solve, maybe helps with some processes of learning later. Uh, that's a little bit of a kind of on the edge controversial point. But what's not controversial is the idea that, you know, you read something once, but as we all know, reading something once does not make you an expert in it. What would you do to build that knowledge so that you would be able to answer more difficult questions about it later? And this is what students do when they're studying. They've sat through the class. They've hopefully read maybe some of the reading assignments, but that doesn't mean they're going to get an A on the test. What should they do with that extra time? And what the retrieval practice research shows is that after you've had some exposure to the material, it's far better to spend the time with the book closed, trying to recall the material. And especially if you can then later go back and check whether you got it right, that's going to be much more efficient than just reading it over and over and over again. So um, I really like Robert Bjork's uh, theory of um, retrieval and storage strength here, but basically just argues that your benefit in terms of your ability to remember something, recall something is sort of inversely related to how difficult it was to retrieve. So if you have something that's like you just seen it and then you practice retrieving it, yeah, you'll be successful at it, but there won't be a corresponding increase in that retrieval strength later. So that sounds like really technical, but I think the basic idea here is that you want to be engaged in some kind of practice. You want to be engaged in a practice where you're getting feedback and hopefully also, as I said in the beginning, that you know what you're doing, so you're not just guessing. But but that's very important for, for studying all sorts of things, especially things like you know book topics and things from lectures and, and stuff like that, where very often the default studying strategy is just to just kind of skim it over again and again. You know, a lot of the folks listening are sitting in environments where they have to onboard workers quickly. You know, mm-hmm. it could be a restaurant, could be a retailer, could be a hotel. And given this moment where, you know, the race back to work is real, um, even the moment that workers are shifting and switching jobs, the saving time in that onboarding motion is important. Um, what specific recommendations would you have to someone that's a, a manager or a responsible for onboarding? Uh, maybe a few strategies they can implement tomorrow that would um, accelerate and make their onboarding uh, exercise more effective. Yeah, I mean, well, we just talked about one right here, which is that if you're going to give people material that you want them to understand, you you know, in a very basic way, this could be like standard operating procedures, or it could be things that are more sophisticated than that. You know, if you're having accountants or programmers, maybe there's some design ethos that you want them to follow. Um, Then it's pretty clear that what we want to do is to have some kind of testing of the people. We want to not just give the material, just read over this book and then go apply it, but we should try to have a little test to see whether or not they've learned it. And I think the way that we often think about tests is as a way of measuring what has been learned. Um, but this research just clearly shows that they're, they're very much a way of encouraging learning as well. And so I think um, probably one of the things that I would shift to is if I were designing these kinds of systems is ones where you present the material in small chunks 
and then you provide kind of repeated testing of that material throughout the sort of training period. And that not only tell, lets you know what people are remembering and recalling from the situation, but it actually strengthens their memory. So they're more likely to remember it and use it later. Use the term desirable difficulties in the mm -hmm. book. Yeah. W what is that? So desirable difficulties, again, this Robert Bjork's concept, and he points to a few areas where there can be what's called a disconnect between learning and performance. So when you train people to do something, uh, what you're measuring is their performance on the tasks. So you, you get them to do something and then you see they have some performance curve, whereas learning is supposed to be the kind of invisible latent, like how much better have they gotten? in general. And that's not what you're measuring. You're measuring their performance. And what they've noticed is that sometimes there can be a bit of a paradox that things that make performance worse, meaning that you seem to learn worse in the short term under which the training takes place, actually results in much better performance, either at a longer time horizon or for a larger variety of tasks and things like this. So he lists a few of them. One of them is the spacing effect, which is basically that if you spread out the intervals that you make someone practice something, they will remember it much longer than if you clump them together. But if you clump them together, then immediately after, which is presumably when you're testing them, they'll do really well. It's just they forget it really quickly. Similarly, there's um, one about interleaving or contextual interference, which is the idea that let's say there's 10 different things that you want to get someone to learn. One way would be teach them task A, teach them task B, teach them task C, just down the line until they've gotten it. And then you move on to the next one. Whereas interleaving would be, you know, you have to do a little bit to make sure that they can at least get it. But then when you're actually testing it, you do A, B, C, C, A, B, and you kind of mix them up and maybe even in a random order so they can't predict what they're going to be tested on. Again, performance is going to be low immediately after this thing or lower than it would be if you do A, 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 B, 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 C, 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 as these uh, testing paradigms are. But they're going to be able to remember it longer and they're also going to be able to uh, transfer it better to actually use it in the real situation. And part of this is because real situations don't come masked out as task AAA, BBB, CCC. There are a big jumble of things. And if you can't discriminate which thing you need to do, you're not going to be very effective at it. So there's a few others that he talks about as well. I know there's some um, research on uh, levels of feedback, having an influence as a desirable difficulty. Um, there's also uh, some stuff on... Um, some of these other little things that you can adjust. I don't want to say all difficulties are desirable. You can definitely make training a lot harder for no benefit. Like for instance, by not providing any instructions or any guidance for how to do something, then it's a lot of trial and error. But it just shows that in some circumstances, increasing the difficulty of the program, which drops the performance, has a much longer and more beneficial effect on your long-term learning. Yeah, It's like when I started in sales and I had that sales manager that you know i hope i never see again do the can you sell me this pen exercise yeah. <laughs> it's been like made famous that you know yeah. it's really uh it's hard just for the sake of being hard right well um, i think you bring up a good point i think that especially when we have people in a training context and work often one of the problems is that we don't explain nearly enough so there's little gaps in like how do you perform this task that we're expecting employees new people to figure out and if they have to figure it out, they just have to try things at random until they get something that works, which can waste a lot of time. And it can be dangerous if, you know, the things they're trying out are bad for the company. And so I definitely think that the more you can provide structure and guidelines so that 
you know, someone would know, okay, this is the right way to do this particular type of thing, or these are good ways to do this kind of thing, the more they can hone in on that, um, the better they're going to be. So definitely that's a, that's not, that's an undesirable difficulty The kind of like, all right, I'm not going to give you any help. Just prove your worth to me. I mean, maybe if you're trying to filter talent, talent, um, candidates on raw intelligence, that's, uh, that's one thing to do. But if you're actually trying to train people to do well, then it definitely helps to provide more structure and guidance. Do you have a perspective on the right amount of, um, you know, positive recognition or positive reinforcement? Because you're talking about, you know, a lot yeah. of, you know, failure and uh, going through that process. And uh, what's the right amount as a manager, uh, or how important is that in this process? Yeah. So it's interesting. The research on feedback. I, one of the studies that I reviewed in Ultra Learning um, found that actually in a in a non-trivial amount, something I think it was like 37% of the studies, um, giving people feedback actually had a negative effect. So we tend to think of feedback as good, but it can backfire. And there's different ways it can backfire. One of the main ways it can backfire is what you're talking about, that like you give someone negative feedback, they take it personally, and then they don't want to work as hard or they shut down on the task. And I think this can be particularly true in uh, workplace settings. I talked to one of the uh, authors of that paper, and he was saying that you have to be very careful you know, when they study feedback in the workplace that often even employees who are seeking feedback are not really seeking feedback. They're seeking validation. They want someone to sit, give them a gold star and say they're doing a good job. And so if you, they actually ask for feedback and you give some criticism, that wasn't what they wanted and they kind of shrink away. And so all the research I've read on feedback says that it works much better the more it can be corrective and applied to a particular task. So it's not an evaluation of, you know, this is what your performance is like, but when you do this, maybe try doing it this way, <laughs> this kind of thing. And then that way they can apply it. It's helpful as opposed to, you know, you're not very good at this kind of work and that's it. That what, what is, you uh, is helpful. What have you seen regarding the timing of feedback? You know, I've yeah. heard some folks say that immediate feedback is helpful, but in some cases, maybe delayed, uh, it would be yeah. more productive. Uh, I guess, how, how do you know when the right moment to give feedback uh, makes sense? So again, I think the research tends to be more in favor of more immediate feedback, just because there's just a general timing issue. If you, if you wait two weeks, whatever decision you made that resulted in the feedback, is going to be faded from memory. It's going to be harder to control that. Um, there are some studies that show that delayed feedback uh, has some beneficial effects, but I usually think of those in terms of a spacing effect. So they're probably because by spreading something out, as opposed to giving meeting feedback, you get multiple exposures to the idea spread out in time. Um, so I think for most practical situations, immediate feedback is probably going to be better. And I think that's especially true if you're dealing with some kind of like control type task where, you know, it, you're not quite sure how to do this and you're making it and you're making all these decisions. You want to get a feedback uh, quite soon. So the, 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 how much feedback you need to give and, and how immediate it is, is, is a little bit like there's some experiments where, you know, if you're doing some kind of online tutoring system, getting people to not correct their errors instantly helps them spot when they're making mistakes and self-correct. So there can be some benefit there, but I think in a practical workplace context, the problem is overwhelmingly that feedback is either non-existent, super delayed out in time, or directed at the individual and not at the specifics of their actual behavior or performance. Interesting. Uh, you, you had a lot of stories that you shared. I'm sure you had a lot more you uh, are saving for the next book or uh, yeah. weren't able to fit in. What was your favorite story uh, in the book? 
Well, I think the favorite one that I had was because I kind of got to witness it firsthand was uh, Tristan de Montebello. And he was someone who took on a little project to get, get her better at public speaking. And it was very much something that like I was in on the ground floor of it. He's like, I kind of want to do this. You know, I know you're writing this book about learning. It would be, you know, maybe I could be like a little guinea pig and you could kind of coach me through this. And I was like, oh, okay. And he just had such a phenomenal result he went, I think, from having very little public speaking experience, like maybe giving a handful of speeches in his life, to being in the top 10 for Toastmasters uh, world competition, which I think has like something like 30,000 people or something to compete elimination style. So that means that he made through all the rounds to get to the top 10 on the stage there. And I mean, obviously, his success is quite dramatic. I don't want to say that everyone could achieve that result if they read my book or something like that. But I do think that his case illustrates a lot of the principles of, you know, this kind of obsessive commitment to getting better at things, the getting the clear feedback, the, you know, a lot of the little details of getting these projects right, I think was embodied in, in how he did it. So I am uh, obviously very uh, impressed and surprised that he got that far in a short period of time. But with his work ethic and how he was uh, approaching it, I'm not surprised that he got a lot better at public speaking quickly. What was the most surprising uh, thing that you heard um, after the book came out and you started to get feedback from folks and that were they were reading it? Was there what was the most surprising uh, piece of feedback that maybe you didn't expect? Well, surprising is maybe the wrong word. It makes it sound like it's totally unexpected. But one of the things I've really found from talking to people is how much uh, emotions play a role in learning beyond just cognitive stuff that like, I'll have these conversations with students sometimes where they'll be like, what's the optimal way to schedule this, blah, 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 blah. And then you like drill down, you have like these email conversations that go back and forth over like a couple of weeks. And then you drill down and you're like, oh, no, no, they're not actually doing that much studying because they have this like anxiety that they're going to like fail and it's going to ruin their whole life. And so the real problem is not like, what is the right way to like schedule flashcards or something? Their real problem is that, you know, they have this kind of anxiety that keeps them from actually putting in significant amounts of studying time. Or people who, you know, they'll, like I've met people who they're living in another country, for instance, and they've been there for years, like decades even, and they don't speak the language, even though it's a significant handicap on their just like going about their daily life. And it's not because they don't have some strategy for, you know, learning the language. It's because they have some psychological block to like regularly practicing it and getting in situations where, you know, yeah, I'm not that good. I would be better in English, but I can regularly use this. And so I think that's something that, um, you know, and not, not to say that I, I neglected it in ultra learning, but it, it's a dimension of learning. I think generally that how much emotions impact it and how much people's stories they tell themselves about who they are as a learner, what they're good at, what they're not good at how those can really overwhelm any kind of on the ground, you know, materially, this is, you know, you have a talent, you don't have a talent, you can learn this, you, you can't learn this kind of uh, facts. I think that's a really important point in, uh, in very relevant right now for talent leaders who have workforces that are made up of a lot of low wage frontline workers. I mean, you're talking about emotions and trauma uh, coming from different educational yeah. experiences and now getting a job that, you know, maybe, um, what, you know, is going to shift in the work that makes up that job is going to shift a lot. Uh, I think that, I think that point is, hit, you know, hits home for me because uh, I'd imagine that in the years to come, the functions that make up jobs are going to shift rapidly. And I think we need everybody to have uh, the ability to be an ultra learner in order to respond quickly enough. 
Yeah. And I, I think as soon as you deal with a social context, there's so much more than just the intellectual aspect of it. I think, you know, whether or not you build the skills that you need depends on what kind of training experiences you have at work, who your peers and mentors are, whether you're put on projects where you actually have some responsibility and you actually have to like execute on it or whether you're relegated to the sidelines or whether you self-relegate to the sidelines because you're worried about the judgment. And so I think those kind of social and emotional factors uh, are huge. And, and so I, I definitely think that um, one sort of element of ultra learning, I think that if I were to try to pursue in another book would be, would be some of these aspects, just because, you know, as I said, uh, like the idea that, well, if you spend a lot of time having real conversations with people in a language, you'll get better at the language is an, a point nearly everyone accepts the part that people had difficulty with, or that they kind of were scared of is, is like, okay, yeah, but like, you're going to go somewhere and you're going to be mediocre in this language and you're just going to only speak it and commit to do it. Uh, from the beginning is the part that, oh, well, that sounds terrifying. <laughs> and, and that's uh, a, an effective method. And so I think that's one of the ways is like, how do you manage those emotions? How do you choose projects so that you can, you know, feel like you have a grasp on them and stuff? Uh, it's a big part. Sure. Scott, last question. Uh, we're talking a lot about future of work. These principles mm -hmm. and concepts have a direct application today more than ever. Um, what's your hope for the future of work? Well, I think what I would really hope for is for education and training to have more options. I think the way we've structured our society right now is funneling everyone through a four-year degree and now increasingly also master's and professional certification. And it's no doubt true that a lot of the stuff that, that, that is taught in those places is helpful. But at the same time, they often become this barrier so that well-qualified people, people who could succeed, um, can't go through that bottleneck. And so they're stuck in jobs that are, you know, much below their potential. And so I'm really hopeful that in the future, we're going to have more varieties of options for training and education and for people to acquire skills that employers will recognize and say, oh, yeah, you know, this person is good. We can hire them to do this job because we can see on their resume that, you know, they did this, even if it wasn't the sort of standard path. And so ultra learning is not really an answer for everyone, but I hope that it's a answer for some people. Great stuff. Scott, thanks for spending time with us. Jaime, do you know what the Dunning-Kruger effect is? I do not. Well, I read Ultra Learning, so I do. The Dunning-Kruger effect occurs when someone with inadequate understanding of a subject nonetheless believes he or she possesses more knowledge about the subject than the people who actually do. Uh, today, what I found in my travels and I enjoyed the conversation with Scott and it made me think about the reality of the conversations that happen day in and day out with certain organizations who aren't doing the best job at staying up to speed with the latest research around how they can onboard, upskill, develop their people, how they are able to adopt the latest techniques from learning science to adapt the way that they are training, developing, and upskilling their people. Just make sure they're more effective at it. I enjoyed the conversation with Scott. Bunch of takeaways here. These points are probably pretty well supported by our audience insofar as you know, we're living in a time where we need to do a better job making training that is relevant, making opportunities to continuously develop and prepare for a career more accessible. And sometimes just funneling everybody into a four-year degree may not make the most sense to do that. 
If you have a second to pick up Ultra Learning, one of the points Scott makes is that transfer is the holy grail of education, which is how we make sure that things we're teaching has carryover effect into the functions of our job every day. And he goes on to say, unfortunately, transfer is also something that despite more than a century of intense work and research has largely failed to occur in formal education. He goes on to quote the psychologist Robert Haskell, who said, despite the importance of transfer of learning, research findings over the past nine decades clearly show that as individuals and as educational institutions, we have failed to achieve transfer of learning on any significant level. Without exaggeration, it's an education scandal. He goes on to say this failure of transfer is not limited to schools. Corporate training also suffers. Quote, researchers who rigorously evaluate training have said that demonstrable changes following training are hard to find in most organizational training and development programs. In a nutshell, it means we got a lot of work to do. It means that as talent leaders, our job is not done. We have to continue to learn. We have to continue to invest in technology. We have to continue to experiment. We have to continue to search to find the best ways to connect, engage, and develop our workforce. The best managers are leaders. The best leaders are coaches. And coaches consistently seek out ways to prepare their people better. So thanks to Scott Young for joining me and talking with me. Again, great book. Head on over to your local bookstore to pick up Ultra Learning, Accelerate Your Career, Master Hard Skills, and Outsmart the Competition. Now, don't forget to subscribe to Bring It In so you never miss an episode. We've got some awesome guests lined up that you're not going to want to miss. Now, back to work. (laughs) 